Okay, this is the uh, time of the day where I give a little talk, a little Dharma talk. And um, so over the past few weeks I've been starting to talk a little bit about what are known in the Zen Buddhist tradition as the precepts. And um, so I'm going to talk a bit more about that today. <coughs> and uh, the way of... Uh, um, understanding and, and um, making the precepts relevant uh, to our uh, contemporary life as uh, people living in today, today's society. Um, the, uh, the reason why um, the, the precepts are quite central in Zen Buddhist practice, as you know, the um, Ordinary mind way, the Zen school is a non-denominational um, Zen school, so they don't necessarily identify as Buddhists, but obviously the tradition is is very much within the the, the Zen Buddhist history, and uh, so we do pay homage to the tradition, traditional teachings as well as contemporary teachings, and uh, the. Um, the tradition in, in traditional Zen Buddhist practice, um, in a kind of a, in a in a religious sense, the um, in the same way as the I guess in Christian religion, there's a certain it's confirmation where one takes up a sort of commitment to practicing uh, within Christianity in some churches. Um, in Buddhism, there's a, a ceremony called Jukai, which in Zen tradition means uh, receiving the precepts and. Um, it's kind of like, a, if you like, a, an initiation ceremony or a ceremony in which one takes up a public commitment in the same way as one would do if we were getting married, kind of that, that idea. And um, they're actually... Um, and, um, so a lot, a lot, of, a lot of Zen centres, uh, probably the majority of Zen centres do... Um, these uh, Jukai ceremonies. And if you ever, if you ever go to, uh, you may some of you may have seen Zen teachers or Zen students wearing these little bibs uh, called rakasus, and uh, and they are, are what are presented to a student when they take up the uh, way of the precepts or the way of Zen. Um, the um, the origins of the precepts are, um, go right back to the, um, the historical times of Buddhism when the, uh, the uh, uh, original monastic communities were formed in, in India and then spread to you know, Sri Lanka and Thailand and so on. And, um, the uh, um, and and if you if you if you if you've ever been if if, if you've ever spoken to or been to a kind of uh, anybody been to a, a Buddhist monastery here? Um, I went to one in I've been to a couple in Australia. I think the, the one was a Thai monastery, and uh, you know they had there's a lot of rules which monks have to abide by, and. Um, Apparently, there's about there's about um, uh, traditionally there was about 227 rules for monks, and I think there was about 331 for women. 
Would you rather say something about how women need more protection or whether they're a bit more unruly than men? <laughs> um, and so, like, these days, if you were to visit uh, a monastery, uh, for example, uh, monks are not allowed to handle money. Um, obviously, they're not allowed to have any possessions except for the robes and a few things. Um, they're not allowed to touch people of the opposite sex. And uh, apparently there was, um, in, the, in the mythology of Buddhism, um, there was a, a, one of the original disciples of Buddha called Ananda, who had a great memory and who recorded all the, uh, memorized all the, all the teachings of, of Buddha and handed those down. And apparently there was another guy who I can't remember his name now, but uh, who managed to remember every time the Buddha said, don't do that, and wrote all those down. <laughs> and uh, so it'd be great to have someone like that in our Sangha. Okay. And, um, and these, anyway, these formed into these rules are called precepts. And, um, and one thing in, that characterized those in those early days, of course, with the monastic life was that the, uh, the life of the monks was set apart from the life of the, uh, of the uh, people who remained uh, with their families and who remained working as farmers or whatever one did in those days. And the, the, um, the way in which this worked, of course, as you probably would, you, you would know, that the, the community, and as this still is the case in Thailand and other countries, where the community provides the food and, uh, and the, the, the monks would have the traditional bowls where they would bake for the food and they would do the, the rounds in the mornings. And uh, even, even these days, they, 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 there's a rule where they don't eat after midday. So they have breakfast and, and then lunch about 11.30 and then there's no more food until breakfast the following day. And even now, if you go on even insight retreats in the Buddhist tradition, even in contemporary insight retreats, sometimes you don't have anything after, after midday. Okay, you get soup and something. Maybe soup later on in, in the evening. Yeah. But I think you know having you know two meals a day is probably highly recommended. Um, and um, so they, you know, there was almost like the sense in which the the the, 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 the monks model this kind of life of um, uh, trying to give up you know worldly desires and to achieve some kind of nirvana in the future. And um, and um, then when, 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 when Buddhism moved to China, it changed a little bit in the sense that the, uh, the monasteries in China became um, adopted a quite, they still had rules, lots of rules, <laughs> but they adopted a different lifestyle where they, um, they became self-sufficient, they grew their own food. And, um, um, and, um, one of the kind of uh, sort of mottos was, uh, you know, no work and no food. So there was an idea where the monks, you know, you know, worked pretty hard. And even now, like if there's certain uh, Zen monasteries in Japan, if you were to go and stay for a while, it's a it's a pretty rigorous, hard lifestyle where you're doing a lot of manual work uh, all all day, as well as doing the the zazen practice. And uh, so, 
when um, the as a famous teacher I've mentioned before, Dogen went to China to study uh, Zen from Japan. Um, he actually uh, came back and he um, he um, actually abbreviated these 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 rules and uh, eventually became known as the 16, 16 precepts. Um, and these are, these are what have been uh, passed down through the generation since that time. And um, again, the kind of um, for the uh, professional, you know, Zen practitioner, um, kind of like the priestly role became more important than the monk role as it moved into uh, and Japan and spread there. So, like uh, um, these days, you'd still find um, the uh, the, the, the priests um, uh, in the temples would be supported really by the community, but the, the priests would play the functions like Christian priests play. So they would do funerals and weddings and that kind of thing. And that, that, that continues a little bit in the West. Like if you go to North America, there's quite a few traditional um, uh, Soto or Zen in particular, where there's a number of Westerners who become priests. and. Uh, one can be a priest and a teacher, or uh, one could just be a priest and do ceremonies, and so on. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not really interested in doing funerals and weddings, so don't don't ask me. <laughs> um, but um, so, um, as of course, as a, you know, we try and develop a Zen which is contemporary and relevant. Um, the question becomes, um, you know, how we how we how can we make these um, these traditions relevant to our lifestyle, where we don't uh, separate ourselves from the community, um, where we live and practice the, amidst the, the community, where we go to work and we we play and, and uh, we get married or we don't get married or and so on, have children or don't have children, and um, so. Um, the way of the uh, of the lay practitioner is is the sense in which um, our our life and uh, has to embody in a sense the the expression of these uh, these precepts and how we live our daily lives. Um, and um, these sixteen precepts uh, they were that were they came to be. Uh, formed as the first three are what are, are are again universal to most Buddhist traditions where one takes refuge, it's called taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. They're the, the first three precepts and in a, in, a, in a ceremony one goes through this I take refuge in Buddha, I take refuge in Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And um, man, that, that, that word refuge, I've always you know, quite, quite liked that idea of uh, Seeking refuge, a place of uh, of safety, and uh, and uh, and uh, in 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 the sense of Buddha, you could see you know um, taking taking refuge in the in the boundlessness of who we truly are. Um, really, in in our zazen practice, really, when we sit in zazen, we are taking refuge in in that sense of boundlessness that we truly are. Um, the uh, taking refuge in the Dharma. The Dharma is sometimes referred to as the teachings. You could see sometimes the teachings as 
as written down in the Buddha's sutras um, or in contemporary books and uh, the sense in which the teachings are this raft which takes us to the other shore of Nirvana but that's a metaphorical expression in fact the, the, uh, the other shore is right here right now it's nowhere else other than here where we already are and, uh, and sometimes the Dharma is just taking as, 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 as reality as it is so the Dharma in that sense is just living in accordance with reality not uh, just uh, accepting reality as it is and that's the, that's the kind of path of Nirvana where we no longer we see suffering by ceasing struggling with what is and the uh, taking refuge in the uh, in the uh, Sangha is in a sense it's just taking refuge in the interconnectedness of all beings uh, we're all inherently one and uh, and hopefully we uh, respond to each other as if we are all one and uh, so we take refuge in the interconnectedness, in the inclusivity, whether uh, and you know, and um, it could be how we how we live with our family, with our friends, with our people we sit in meditation with, with our work colleagues, with our region where we live, or the community we live in, Belgium or Australia or the world, and how we take refuge in all of in, in that sense of interconnectedness and inclusivity. And they're the three refuges. And then there's the, what are referred to as the three pure precepts, which are really just about um, a meaning to do no harm, no harm to self or others. Um, they're often worded in different ways. There's a nice wording in this book by Elizabeth Hamilton. Elizabeth's another Zen teacher in the ordinary mind tradition calls them the three primary precepts or aspirations um, being uh, non-harmfulness or vow to abstain from indulging in harmful thoughts, words or actions uh, benefaction I vow to act beneficially on behalf of all concerned and inclusivity I vow to awaken to the inherent nature of existence and consciously manifest and serve our inherent unity serve all of life and so they're the three pure precepts. And then the, um, the ten, um, uh, what you might call applied pre pre precepts, are sometimes worded as uh, do, not, not so much as commandments not to, but sometimes are worded in, as in the sense of a prohibition, but sometimes worded as no killing or not to kill. You know? So the first one is no killing or not to kill, then no stealing, no misuse of sex, no lying, no dealing in alcohol or drugs, um, no speaking of the thoughts of others, no praising of yourself while abusing others, and uh, no indulgence in anger, and there's a couple of other religious ones. Um, they're, they're like the traditional wordings, but um, it's um, when um, um, Dogen wanted to, um, in, in Zen, um, one of the fundamental understandings is the Heart Sutra, which we recited earlier on today. That idea that um, of what is sometimes referred to as, as the relative and the absolute. So the sense in which we are both, you know, we're both um, this person called Andrew who suffers and who loves and who laughs and who lives in a certain historical period. Um, that's the relative. And the, we're also the sense of, of boundlessness in the sense in which um, 
um, we're all much greater than that and we all participate in that inherent unity of existence and oneness. And uh, so in, from an absolute perspective, we're, the, the, there's no one to save and no one to be saved. There's no one who suffers. There's no one who's born. There's no one who dies. That's what the meaning of that is, is that um, from the inherent uh, absolute perspective, we're all okay just as we are right now. There's nothing that we're lacking. We're full and complete in the oneness of life. And, um, and in, in a way, the uh, Dogen wanted to say the, the precepts, including Zazen, are trying to express that, that, that oneness, that express that uh, inherent unity uh, in all that we do and say. Um, that idea when we, we're meeting ourselves all the time. When I meet Louise, when I'm meeting myself. Um, um, and, um, but, um, you know, we, we all appreciate the fact that uh, we can maybe sometimes touch on that boundlessness and oneness, but then uh, someone turns around and says a, a critical word about Andrew and all of a sudden, <laughs> that oneness has gone out the window and uh, I'm back into my relative self again. And um, so, um, the um, so the 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 the, um, the precepts with a quite, quite slightly different wording um, uh, can be very helpful in uh, in bringing a focus to our to our lives and. Uh, shining some light on areas where we might get stuck or where we need to do some inquiry or some reflection and uh, maybe a self-observation. Um, but um, just a couple of things that, um, you know, Joko Beck didn't talk a lot about the precepts, but she, um, like, uh, she gives a, an introduction to this book by Diana Rosetta, a teacher in the Ordinary Mind School, where uh, Diana takes the precepts and talks about how we can apply them in our everyday lives. And uh, Diana words them in a, in a kind of positive way, um, where she um, emphasizes the, uh, the aspirational um, aspects of the, of the precepts. Um, so um, she'll talk about like, um, I take up the way of speaking of others with openness and possibility. Um, and, um, or for example, um, I take up the way of speaking truthfully. So phrasing the, the precepts as aspirations. And, uh, you know, Joko says in her introduction to Diane's book that, uh, that we need to work with the precepts with intelligence, otherwise we are in danger of making them into a set of rules. And, uh, so Joko says, um, you know, this is a book about choice, responsibility, and being awake to the motivation and consequences of our actions. Do we act from intelligence or from ignorance? Um, she goes on to say that, you know, we be if we are intelligent, we begin to learn that we are responsible for our own happiness and for our own well-being. But also, we can also see that our happiness and well-being is intricately connected to the happiness and well-being of others. And um, so, when we take up the way of the precepts, it's a, it's a sense in which we want to be 
following the way of compassion and how we respond to ourselves and also how we respond to others. Um, in a sense, um, we, are, we are responsible for our, our happiness, but like when we see people around us who, who we love or who we care for, and maybe we don't know too well, but if we see like everyone around us is, is suffering and, and not doing well, then it's going to be hard for us to sort of just concern ourselves with our own happiness. So it's a sense in which, so that the precepts are about embracing those two aspects. But we always like to, to focus on how the importance of, we start with responding to ourselves with compassion, where we try and our best to become these little islands of, uh, of sanity and compassion in the sea of madness often, which is around us in the world. And, um, and yeah, um, Mary, my teacher, likes to think of the precepts as being a, a sense in which we bear witness to life as it is, and um, a sense in which we just notice what's going on with our, within, our, within ourselves, and also we notice we might witness someone else who's uh, suffering. And so it's a form of bearing witness and then, and then responding in some way, uh, with compassion. Um, and there's infinite number of different ways we can do this. Um, and so I've, um, I've written up the precepts, sort of bringing those two together, the sort of witnessing aspect as well as the um, aspirational aspect. And um, <clears throat> to give an example, so um, the first precept I've written as I I bear witness to the reality of violence and abuse in myself and in the world and aspire to practice non-violence in my thoughts, words and actions. I bear witness to the reality of inequality and of greed in myself and in the world and aspire towards equality and sharing freely of all that I can. And uh, I bear witness to the lack of honesty in myself and in the world, and aspires to speak truthfully and compassionately. Um, I bear witness to the reality of delusion and the desire to evade the painful truths of my life in myself and in the world, and aspire to experience reality directly with clarity and kindness to self and others. Um, so, um, the, um, the, those precepts are up on my website, but you can get a copy of those today if you want as well. And um, so there's a sense in which, uh, in terms of Zen practice, one could look at the precepts and one could, you know, you could, you could take one of the precepts up as a focus uh, for a week or two and you could um, perhaps um, reflect on the precept and in terms of observing that precept throughout the two-week period and maybe do some journaling or and then maybe come and discuss it in, in an interview, if you like, and what, with me um, or with, any, with, with anyone. And um, we could do it in a group as well. So they, they, can't, they can kind of sort of act as um, um, guides to practice in a way um, and um, give us a bit of a focus um, to look at in our lives. Um, you know, so like, you know, it's not about, so it's not about, you know, abstaining or prohibitions. I mean, take alcohol, for example. I enjoy a glass of wine. Um, but like, um, it would be, you know, if, if uh, what's, the, what's the balance, you know? What's the, what's the, um, 
what's the middle way though? What's, um, does, 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 does having too many glasses of wine sometimes lead to me harming myself or someone else in some way? Um, the same could be applied for any, any drug, you know, um, and uh, how, how you work with that. And uh, we all have to do that, find our own way uh, in terms of that. Or we could take honesty and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, in what ways uh, can, we, can we practice intelligently with honesty to ourselves and others. And, you know, we're not always necessarily going to say what's on our mind to somebody. So it's, uh, again, it's, it's using these, 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 these guidelines with flexibility. Um, and um, so the... Um, so, um, so I would, um, it's, um, it's, I would recommend um, having a look through the precepts. You don't necessarily have to take one up or anything like that, but um, familiarize with yourself with the precepts. Um, Diana's book's pretty good, um, and um, we can, um, you know, take it up in, in discussion at times. Okay, so we'll just leave it at that for today. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>